May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This afternoon, I um, sat down to look at the text of my sermon for tonight, and two things struck me about what I'd written. One is, it was a bit on the long side, and I knew that it was going to be hot in here tonight. The other was that it was pretty thick with quotations from Benedictine scholars. I I, I got a little ambitious, I think, on Friday morning when I was writing, and as I reread it, I thought, this is supposed to be a feast and a celebration, and it's hot. (laughs) I'm hardly going to be able to concentrate on all this text, much less you. So that text will be set aside. I will post it later in the week on the website, so if there's a nice cool morning late in the week and you want to kind of dig in, please do. But what I'm going to say tonight will be a little more personal than what I had written. As many of you are aware, I have a kind of a relationship with St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Um, It's a place where I spent an entire month of a study leave, and I've been on three other occasions, and in fact, I'm going for a week later this summer. It is a Benedictine abbey with about 150 monks, and it's in that place, on their whole property, on, on the whole of what they do, that I find myself feeling most centered and alive. It's really quite striking, actually, when I'm there. And it has to do with a number of things. The Benedictine brothers who are there pray daily, of course, four times a day, and you can join them, and I do as much as I can. And there is, in their prayer, great beauty. The psalms are sung with with just absolute beauty. But there's also stillness and silence and a way of reading and listening that just shifts your gears. And that's offered in this utterly beautiful worship space. But it's not just that. St. John's is set on 2,000 acres of wildlife reserve in rural Minnesota. Lakes and hills and trails that you can kind of go on endlessly through wetlands and so on. And so there's something wonderful about getting away from the city and just being in that space as well. But it's not just that. The Abbey runs a small university of some 3,000 students. And so on that 2,000 acres, along with the monastic community, there's this, this lovely little university, which is often not in session when I'm there, but, but this, there's still a kind of a vibrancy that comes with being there. That university offers a very credible academic program for undergraduates, but also a very, very high-class athletics program. They have a football team. It's coached by the winningest football coach in the history of American collegiate football. Now, it's, it's not big league, you know, top ten American stuff. It's a little college, but... This guy has been coaching there for over 45 years. He's in his mid-80s. And he's won more games than any other coach in American football. When the monks hired him 45-plus years ago, their instructions were, we want you to coach like Jesus and win games. (laughs) And he has. 
But it's not just about the university either, because on the same grounds there is the Collegeville Institute, where I tend to go, which is a, a retreat center for writing, where you have time and space and, and, and lovely space to focus on writing projects, but are also part of a, a small community of other writers and scholars who are interested in, in each other's work and kind of build that up. But it's not just that. There's an art gallery, and there's a pottery studio where young people are mentored by a very high-class potter. There's a manuscript museum that not only is the world's leading preserver of ancient manuscripts digitally, but also has produced the St. John's Bible, the first handwritten Bible in 400 years, fully handwritten and illuminated. It's gorgeous. Minnesota Public Radio was started by the monks at Collegeville. And the list goes on and on and on. It's this extraordinarily vibrant place that pays attention to everything from football games to ancient manuscripts to learning to playing to prayer in the chapel. It's very Benedictine in that sense. Benedict's vision when he first began to articulate his rule for community life was born just as the Roman Empire was beginning to breathe its very last gasps. In fact, Benedict had gone in about the year 500 to Rome to study, and he was so overwhelmed by the decay and the decadence of that city that he left. He eventually became a hermit, but, but eventually he became the center of a community of other like-minded men who found that Rome and all the empire had to offer was hollow. And so these communities that Benedict formed, for men and for women, were built around an alternative way of being in the world. And they emphasized balance. And so there is, there is prayer. There's also digging in the garden. There's work, manual work. But there's play. There's rest. There's study and writing and, and the preserving of the wisdom of the past, but also the creation of new ideas. Those communities understood what it meant to feast. In Benedict's rule, feasting is important, but they also knew it was sometimes most appropriate to fast. All things had space in these communities, and in a sense, all people were meant to have space because they had a high regard for hospitality. When the stranger knocked at the door, the door was always to be open, and they were to be welcomed as Christ. They were places of refuge, of safety, of hospitality, places that people could re-anchor. During his life, which was spent in what is now Italy, central Italy, he founded 12 of these communities, and for these communities he, read, he wrote his rule, that little section of which we read tonight. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's, if, you, if you read the rule, it's not sort of all about happily balancing our lives. He's challenging. He's calling a community to deep foundational obedience to the gospel in a world which he perceives is about to come apart at the seams. And in fact, he was right. Within a hundred years of his writing the rule, the Roman Empire, as it had been known, had come apart at the seams. 
and Europe, which had been so stabilized by that political, military, economic reality, was plunged into what we later came to call the Dark Ages. But by the time it did make that plunge all across Europe, the landscape was dotted with Benedictine communities of men and of women, all the way through continental Europe and up through into Great Britain. And those Benedictine houses dotting the landscape of Europe actually, historians will agree, became crucial for the preservation of an ancient or a, or, or, or a more ancient way of being, of preserving old manuscripts, of preserving old ways of being and doing, but in a new way in a chaotic society. They became refuges and places of safety for travelers. They were places of learning. They encouraged literacy. They gardened and taught others to garden with them. They produced wine or they produced cheese and they created local economies. They centered community life. And they kept things like the scriptures from being lost in the midst of social chaos. In fact, Benedictine communities essentially were the places that carried the light of the gospel forward as everything else was coming apart. In the fall of 2003, a group of 17 of us spent a day discerning whether or not there might be a new church community birthed. And one of the questions this little group of 17 people had to consider once we said, yes, we would like to try to birth a new liturgical community, something that would bring the old forward in new ways, something that paid attention to what Robert Weber called the church's ancient future, we had to get a name if we're going to be this. And so we began to talk about names, and the first several names that we came up with were a bit bland. They were kind of too contemporary, too flat. And then Lola Ides, who many of you will know, Lola was in that circle, and she said, well, we've talked about the church's ancient future. Why don't we take one of those simple, very contemporary names like the table and match it with the name of a saint so it would be Saint Somebody's Table? And I said, Benedict is our guy. Because Benedict had this vision for communities that made room for all things and for all people, that paid attention to the, all of the rhythms of life and wanted to anchor that in prayer, yes, but also in all those other things. And he did that at a time when his society desperately needed a new vision for how to be the people of God. And we all knew as we talked that our society is, the, the, the ground is shifting all around us. The social and cultural landscape of Canada is just different from what it was 20 years ago. And so maybe Benedict could be our symbolic patron with his vision for renewed community. One of the things I've learned at St. John's Abbey is that great communities are not made of perfect, pious, and holy people. Great Christian communities are actually made up of people. And people are complicated. Benedict was not trying to create a bunch of plaster saints his rule is for disciples on the move, in formation, always learning and growing, always aware of their gifts and their liabilities. 
And at St. John's Abbey, I have seen a snapshot of that. I want to read to you a poem describing the monastic community at St. John's, written by my friend, Father Killian McDonald. It's called, The Monks of St. John's File In for Prayer. In we shuffle hooded amplitudes, scapular brooms, a stray earring, skinheads, and flowing locks, blind in one eye, hook-nosed, handsome as a prince, and knows it, a five-thumbed organist, an acolyte who sings in quarter tones, one slightly swollen keeper of the bees, the carpenter minus a finger here and there, our pre-senile writing deathless verse, a stranded sailor, a Cassian scholar, the artist suffering the visually illiterate and indignities unnamed, two determined liturgists, in a word, eager purity and weary virtue. Last of all, the Lord Abbot, early old, shepherding the saints is like herding cats. These chariots and steeds of Israel make a black progress into church. A rumble of monks bows low and offers praise to the high God of gods who is faithful forever. That monastic community, like this community, is full of people. And to be a part of a community of people means we bring our gifts, we bring our eccentricities. We bring what is good and we bring our wounds. Some people come with deep wounds. Other people come pretty much doing all right day by day by day. And some of us come still not aware of our hurts, but we come. And when we walk up this aisle with the floorboards creaking under us, some come barefoot, some come with sandals, runners, Sometimes I'm not the only one in dress shoes, but we come creaking up the aisle to stand in a circle and to receive together the bread and the wine and to tell that grand old story yet again. And as we do, like the monks in their chapel, we bow and we offer our praise to the high God of gods who is indeed faithful forever. May we catch a vision of that kind of community in which all things matter and in which everyone has a place. May we feast well on this day of St. Benedict. Amen.